Jane Austen's Emma, Volume 2, Part 3, Chapters 7 through 9. Chapter 7 begins as follows. Emma's very good opinion of Frank Churchill was a little shaken the following day by hearing that he was gone off to London merely to have his hair cut. A sudden freak seemed to have seized him at breakfast, and he had sent for a chase and sent off, intending to return to dinner, but with no important view that appeared than having his hair cut. There was certainly no harm in his traveling sixteen miles twice over on such an errand, but there was an air of foppery and nonsense in it which she could not approve. It did not accord with the rationality of plan, the moderation in expense, or even the unselfish warmth of heart which she had believed herself to discern in him yesterday. End of quote. And the narrator goes on to say, his father only called him a coxcomb and thought it a very good story, but that Mrs. Weston did not like it was clear enough by her passing it over as quickly as possible and making no other comment than that all young people would have their little whims, end quote. The affair of the haircut probably seems strange to us, but 16 miles to London would be about half a day's ride each way, so this is an errand which occupies an entire day, and presumably there are places in Highbury to have one's hair cut, so it does say something about Frank. The hairstyles during the Regency period in the early 19th century were shorter than those of the 18th century when long hair was more in fashion and wigs were even worn for formal occasions. But by this point, hair is worn shorter. The next paragraph begins, With the exception of this little blot, Emma found that his visit hitherto had given her friend only good ideas of him. Mrs. Weston seems generally pleased with Frank, who seems to her to be pleasant, cheerful, and respectful. And for Emma herself, in the words of the narrator, but for such an unfortunate fancy for having his hair cut, there was nothing to denote him unworthy of the distinguished honor which her imagination had given him. Mr. Weston has indicated to Emma that Frank admires her, and he seems quite pleased about this. Quote, there was one person among his new acquaintance in Surrey not so leniently disposed. In general, he was judged throughout the parishes of Donwell and Highbury with great candor. Liberal allowances were made for the, the little excesses of such a handsome young man, one who smiled so often and bowed so well. But there was one spirit among them not to be softened from the, its power of censure by bows or smiles. Mr. Knightley, end quote. So, once again, Mr. Knightley and Emma disagree on Frank Churchill. Mr. Knightley's reaction to Frank's haircut journey is, hmm, just the trifling silly fellow I took him for. Mr. and Mrs. Weston visit Emma to discuss an upcoming event involving a family by the name of Cole, who had invited them to a dinner party. Quote, the Coles had been settled some years in Highbury and were very good sort of people, friendly, liberal, and unpretending, but on the other hand, they were of low origin, in trade, and only moderately genteel, end quote. 
The word liberal here means generous. Quote, on their first coming into the country, they had lived in proportion to their income, quietly, keeping little company, and that little unexpensively. But the last year or two had brought them a considerable increase of means. The house in town had yielded greater profits, and fortune in general had smiled on them. With their wealth, their views increased. Their want of a larger house, their inclination for more company, the Coles were very respectable in their way, but they ought to be taught that it was not for them to arrange the terms on which the superior families would visit them, end quote. So the Coles are nice people, and they've moved up in the world financially, and are now trying to increase their respectability by acquainting themselves with the upper-class families. Emma's first reaction is that they will probably decline the invitation from the Coles, but eventually they decide to accept it because the Coles have expressed themselves so properly and have even been so considerate of Emma's father as to order a folding screen from London in order to protect Mr. Woodhouse from drafts. Chapter 8 is another one of our gathering chapters. Frank Churchill has returned from his London haircut expedition and has even, quote, laughed at himself with a very good grace, end quote. The families arrive at the Coles' door, surprised to discover that Mr. Knightley has arrived in a carriage. Mr. Knightley does not travel very often by carriage, hence Emma's surprise. She is pleased because she thinks this makes him look more like the gentleman that he is. Also, there are the Bates women, Jane Fairfax, Miss Smith, and Mr. Cox, the lawyer of Highbury. One bit of interesting information, Jane Fairfax arrived back at the Bates residence, quote, and as soon as she entered the room, had been struck by the sight of a pianoforte, a very elegant-looking instrument, not a grand, but a large-sized square pianoforte, and the substance of the story, the end of all the dialogue which ensued of surprise and inquiry and congratulations on her side, and explanations on Miss Bates's, was that the pianoforte had arrived from Broadwoods the day before, to the great astonishment of both aunt and niece, entirely unexpected, that at first, by Miss Bates's account, Jane herself was quite at a loss, quite bewildered to think who could possibly have ordered it. But now they were both perfectly satisfied that it could be from only one quarter. Of course, it must be from Colonel Campbell. End quote. Broadwoods was a famous London piano maker of the day. So we have a mystery here. Who has sent the piano to Jane Fairfax? The various theories of who has sent it occupy much of the chapter. Mrs. Cole is of the opinion that Colonel Campbell must have sent it. This refers to the house where Jane was raised. But Emma suggests Mrs. Dixon, the former Miss Campbell, the daughter of Jane's father's friend, or perhaps Mr. and Mrs. Dixon, remembering that Mr. Dixon had saved Jane from being swept overboard on a sailing trip as mentioned previously by Miss Bates and recounted in this chapter by Frank. Frank and Emma discuss various theories about the gift, with Frank concluding that whoever sent it, it must re represent an offering of love. 
There is a moment of awkwardness that Austin mentions between courses of the dinner party. Quote, the conversation was here interrupted. They were called on to share in the awkwardness of a rather long interval between the courses and obliged to be as formal and as orderly as the others. But when the table was again safely covered, when every corner dish was placed exactly right and occupation and ease were generally restored, Emma said, the arrival of this pianoforte is decisive with me, and so on. What is noteworthy about this is the fact that a two-course meal was considered a more elaborate and more upscale form of entertainment, and the fashion was that the table had to be reset and all the crumbs brushed out between courses. So the Coles have chosen to serve the more elegant two-course dinner because they want to impress their more esteemed neighbors, the Woodhouses and Mr. Knightley. But their servants are not quite equal to the task. This long, awkward silence shows that they are just a bit inept at being able to handle the change of courses. This says something about the Coles. Although they have risen in the world, they are still a bit fumbling. In the course of the evening's entertainments, Frank Churchill has been looking intently at Jane Fairfax, and his explanation to Emma is that Miss Fairfax has done her hair in so odd a way, so very odd a way, that I cannot keep my eyes from her. I never saw anything so outre. Those curls, this must be a fancy of her own. I see nobody else looking like her. I must go and ask her whether it is an Irish fashion. Shall I? Yes, I will. I declare I will, and you shall see how she takes it, whether she colors, end quote. That is, whether she blushes. So Frank goes over to talk to Miss Fairfax, and this reveals something about Frank's character, that he speaks freely to Emma about Jane Fairfax, as Emma has previously done with him, and also that Frank is entertained by the prospect of playing with Jane to see if he can get her to blush. In the meantime, Emma has a conversation with Mrs. Weston, the former Miss Taylor, about Mr. Knightley's arrival in the carriage. Mrs. Weston reveals that this was to take the Bates women and their niece, Jane, home again. This is so unusual on Mr. Knightley's part that Mrs. Weston theorizes that Mr. Knightley has made this gesture because he is enamored of Jane Fairfax. He is always speaking well of her and showing her kindnesses. As Mrs. Weston says, In short, I have made a match between Mr. Knightley and Jane Fairfax. See the consequences of keeping you company? What do you say to it? Mr. Knightley and Jane Fairfax? exclaimed Emma. Dear Mrs. Weston, how could you think of such a thing? Mr. Knightley? Mr. Knightley must not marry. You would not have little Henry cut out from Donwell? Oh, no, no, Henry must have Donwell. I cannot at all consent to Mr. Knightley's marrying. And I am sure it is not at all likely. I am amazed that you should think of such a thing. Emma is thinking here of her nephew, the oldest son of Mr. John Knightley, Mr. Knightley's brother. If Mr. Knightley does not have children, the eldest son of his younger brother would inherit the estate. Emma has an objection to Mr. Knightley's marrying, but presents it to Mrs. Weston and perhaps to herself as well 
as because she does not want little Henry to be cut out. Emma goes on to say, My dear Mrs. Weston, do not take to matchmaking. You do it very ill. Jane Fairfax, mistress of the Abbey? Oh, no, no. Every feeling revolts. For his own sake, I would not have him do so mad a thing. Imprudent, if you please, but not mad, accepting inequality of fortune and perhaps a little disparity of age, I can see nothing unsuitable. But Mr. Knightley does not want to marry. I am sure he has not the least idea of it. Do not put it into his head. Why should he marry? He is as happy as possible by himself, with his farm and his sheep and his library and all the parish to manage, and he is extremely fond of his brother's children. He has no occasion to marry, either to fill up his time or his heart. My dear Emma, as long as he thinks so, it is so. But if he really loves Jane Fairfax. Nonsense. He does not care about Jane Fairfax. In the way of love, I am sure he does not. He would do any good to her or her family, but... So, here we have a debate between Emma and Mrs. Weston about Mr. Knightley and Jane Fairfax. And obviously, Emma has some jealousy here toward Jane Fairfax, because the idea of Jane being the mistress of Donwell Abbey is highly revolting to her. Were such a thing to happen, it would also put Jane in a social position superior to Emma herself. Then Mrs. Weston goes on to offer her theory of the piano, that it was sent by Mr. Knightley, but Emma says, I do not think it is at all a likely thing for him to do. Mr. Knightley does nothing mysteriously. Mrs. Weston, however, is not convinced. They combated the point some time longer in the same way, Emma rather gaining ground over the mind of her friend, for Mrs. Weston was the most used of the two to yield. When Emma has a chance to ask Mr. Knightley about the pianoforte, he assures her that he has not sent it, saying that, Surprises are foolish things. The pleasure is not enhanced, and the inconvenience is often considerable. I should have expected better judgment in Colonel Campbell. Emma is sure from this that the gift did not come from Mr. Knightley. The evening's entertainments include some singing, as was typical during this time period. Emma has played first, and does so competently enough, and then Jane Fairfax has played and sung and is very accomplished. Frank does some singing with her. Apparently they have sung together before at Weymouth. Quote, Toward the end of Jane's second song, her voice grew thick. That will do, said he, when it was finished, thinking aloud. You have sung quite enough for one evening. Now be quiet. Another song, however, was soon begged for. One more. They would not fatigue Miss Fairfax on any account, and would only ask for one more, and Frank Churchill was heard to say, I think you could manage this without effort. The first part is so very trifling, the strength of the song falls on the second, end quote. Frank is singing the second part here, and at this, quote, Mr. Knightley grew angry. That fellow, said he indignantly, thinks of nothing but showing off his own voice, this must not be. And touching Miss Bates, who at that moment passed near, Miss Bates, are you mad to let your niece sing herself hoarse in this manner? Go and interfere. They have no mercy on her. End quote. 
Mrs. Weston sees this as a sign of Mr. Knightley's interest in Jane, but he appears annoyed by the fact that Jane, who has fragile health and is given to sore throats, is being asked to sing too much just so that Frank can show off his own voice. As chapter 9 opens, Emma reflects on the evening at the Coles. Quote, there were two points in which she was not quite easy. She doubted whether she had not transgressed the duty of woman by woman in betraying her suspicions of Jane Fairfax's feelings to Frank Churchill. It was hardly right, but it had been so strong an idea that it would escape her, and his submission to all that she told was a compliment to her penetration, which made it difficult for her to be quite certain that she ought to have held her tongue. The other circumstance of regret related also to Jane Fairfax, and there she had no doubt. She did unfeignedly and unequivocally regret the inferiority of her own playing and singing. She did most heartily grieve over the idleness of her childhood, and sat down and practiced vigorously an hour and a half, end quote. Soon after these reflections, Harriet Smith arrives at Hartfield, and Emma, Harriet, and Mrs. Weston decide to pay a visit to the Bates ladies to see this miraculous pianoforte about which they have heard so much. They will arrive at the Bates residence in the next chapter. This chapter features a very generous sampling of Miss Bates's hypertextual conversation in which she rambles about many things, interrupting herself to ask, what was I talking about? Emma wondered on what of all the medley she would fix, end quote. Emma refers to Miss Bates's conversations as a kind of medley, an interesting metaphor. One of the interesting things about Miss Bates, though, is that despite all her disconnected ramblings, we do glean snippets of real information from her that we don't get from anyone else. In fact, there are some critics who consider Miss Bates as a kind of counter-narrator to Emma. For example, in this section, we learn that Mr. Knightley had sent a sack of apples to the Bates women, as he has always done, but when they ran out of them, he generously sent another sack of apples to them. It turns out that Mr. Knightley gave up all his own apples, and his cook was even annoyed about this. So this passage reveals something about Mr. Knightley's generosity and the degree to which he cares for people like the Bates women. Thus, Miss Bates's medleys can sometimes provide us minor details that give us more information about a character or about certain events, and we only get them from Miss Bates.